Now, I need to admit the actual title for the sermon was Responding to the Lord's Anointed, but that was too long to fit in that little bit. (laughs) So we're going to come before the Lord in prayer and ask that he would speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, who is ruler and king over everything. We thank you that everything you do is an expression of your good and perfect character. And Lord, we pray that as we engage you and we encounter you through your word this morning, that we might come to appreciate something more of the magnitude of who you are and how desperately we we need you and how good is the grace and mercy you have shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that by your spirit you be in work in every single person in this room, myself included, uh, to become more and more like your son and draw nearer to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got wonderful neighbours and I thought it'd be really weird if they just happened to turn up this morning and that was the opening introduction. But every time I go down to the letterbox, because Kenzie loves to check the letterbox, partly she likes to look in the letterbox to see what's there, but there's also another little motive. We get to the letterbox, we open the letterbox, we get things out of the letterbox, then there's, can I go see Glenn or can I go see Gail, that's our neighbours, Uh, to the right of our house. Now, they're wonderful neighbours. I don't think there's any reasonable request that I could make of them that they would have any objection to whatsoever. While we're away, they did some things around the house for us. There was a time when Miller was in hospital and she was particularly unwell and Sarah, one of us had to be there at all times um, with Miller. And during that sort of changeover between mum and dad, Gail was in the house with, with Kenzie while she was asleep. Only it would be a bit weird when she woke up and found someone that wasn't her mum, but she was happy to do anything. In fact, they've actually said to us at times, you don't ask enough of us. Now imagine if they were to go away and they say, can you feed our dog Teddy? Now Teddy's not exactly a small little teddy bear, they're... The big dog there is their dog, the smaller one is ours. Imagine how disrespectful it would be if I said, no way, you've asked too much. I've got a dog, why am I going to look after your dog? Why didn't you organise a kennel? Like, even if they hadn't already been so generous to us, which they have, wouldn't it be rude to respond in that way? Especially when I like dogs, and I actually like big dogs. But it's sad that sometimes we think in terms of a ledger. We think, well, what what have they done for us in the past? Or we think, if the tables were turned around, would they do it for me? As though somehow that's a measure by which we determine what we should do. I never noticed that clause when Jesus said, we are to love our neighbours ourselves. I don't remember there being a clause saying, if you think they would do the same for you. Today we see the gracious act of the Lord's anointed and we were looking at two different ways in which people respond to it. One who's described as a fool and another who's described as discerning and wise. Now we've been looking at it for weeks. David on the run from Saul, Saul seeking to take his life. And we've been asking the question, when will 
the Lord's anointed David finally sit on the throne and rule over Israel. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't happen today in chapter 25, but we do see some significant developments. Both with regards to David's role as a king temporarily over the nation of Israel, but also as his future role of the everlasting king for all times. The way in which people respond, both Nabal and Abigail, to David's gracious act, also foreshadows something of the way in which we respond to the gracious act of that final and perfect Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. So wherever you are with regards to Jesus, this speaks with regards to all of us. We're going to just look up to verse 31. Firstly, the gracious act of the Lord's anointed and then two responses in verses 9 to 31. This is a chapter which focuses on the future king. And it begins with a statement about Samuel. And Samuel now died. Samuel was the one who brought the monarchy into place into the nation of Israel at the request of the people. He was a highly respected judge and priest within Israel. He was a godly man. But we're not surprised that he died at this point in time. Even back in chapter 8 when the people are saying, give us a king, it tells us that he was already old in years. The last significant reference to Samuel was back in chapters 15 and 16, where in chapter 15 it is Samuel who says to Saul, the kingdom has been taken from you and is being given to a neighbour who is greater than you. Followed by chapter 16 where David is anointed and while he's not specifically told what he's being anointed for, we know that is where it is, is heading. So in some sense it's a fitting time that Samuel would fade off into the scene now that even last week Saul himself had said, you will become king over Israel to David. David, after this event, heads down south to Paran and then further he goes further around to the area of, of Carmel. So a bit of time is actually takes place between verses 1 and 2 where once again David is gathered with his 600 men. While we're in this area, around Carmel, we're introduced to two new characters. Nabal, I don't know if that's his actual name because it means fool, so it's quite a cruel name if his parents have actually called him that, if it's not actually a nickname. And Abigail, who's described as beautiful, wise, discerning and of understanding. While they're in the area, David and the men take it upon themselves to protect Nabal's shearers and, and, and to protect their livestock. They've got 3,000 goats, 3,000 sheep and not a single one of them was lost. Not one of them was lost to the Philistines, to any of the surrounding tribes or to wild animals. All of them were protected. A fact that's confirmed by Nabal's own workers in verses 15 and 16. Now sheep searing was a great time for celebration. The feast day that is referred to in these verses is a day when they would celebrate the prosperity which they have. And at that time, David sends 10 of his own men to this celebration, hoping to receive some provisions in response for the thanksgiving for helping um, Nabal and his prosperity. 
It seems like a perfectly reasonable request to make. Now you might look and think, oh, David's a bit shifty, isn't he? No, no one asked him to go looking after things and he's just taken it upon himself. Now he goes to the guy and say, you owe me something for it. But in that culture at the time, it was actually perfectly normal and perfectly reasonable and perfectly acceptable to acknowledge the help that David had given and respond with a kind gesture. So how will Nabal respond to the gracious gesture by the Lord's anointed? Well, verses 9 to 31 show us two very different responses between Nabal and his wife, Abigail. What we see is they foreshadow the gracious gesture by the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ, the final and perfect Davidic king, which is equally challenges us with two responses that we could make to him as well. David's ten servants conveyed the message just as they were asked to to Nabal. And this is how he responds. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to the men whom I do not know where they've come from? Like he's got two things he's really hammering in on. Who is David and what has my stuff got to do with him? Now you could think as you read that, oh, Nabal's never heard of David. He must, be, he must have missed out on finding out about this bloke. Nabal knows exactly who David is. David was the commander of Saul's armies. He's the one that Saul has been on active pursuit for time and time again. David himself is from the south. And even Nabal makes it very clear. He knows who he is. He knows he is the son of Jesse. So it's not a question of whether or not he knows who David is. It's more along the lines of, who does this David think he is? Who does this David think he is that I should honour him? Me, the great Nabal. Why would I honour him? Why is he asking anything of me? Why would he expect to receive anything in response from me. Because he seems to think of himself pretty highly. Like he said, why are you giving my stuff? My wine, my meat. That I was supposed to give to my shearers, which I'm not really that sure. Even though it's an excuse he's offered that he really cares that much about his men, he's described as being a harsh man. It's a statement of why on earth would I honour this David? And it's also a question of why does he think he's so worthy that I should give up anything at all for him? Now last week when David refused to attack Saul saying he was the Lord's anointed. But as David hears word about Nabal's response to his gracious act, Things are a little bit different. It's no, oh, I won't touch him. Everyone, strap on your swords. 400 men going with swords to Nabal and all the guys there working with them. It's very clear what his response is. Off with their heads. There was a time when swords were scarce back in 1 Samuel. Obviously, along the time, they've, they've managed to gather quite a few of them. 
But whatever has happened, David has concluded Nabal must be punished for the way in which he has responded to me. So you've got response number one of Nabal. He refuses to acknowledge the Lord's anointed or give up anything in return for him. Secondly, you've got the response of his wife, Abigail, who's described as being wise, discerning and beautiful. Now one of Nabal's men, who knows that Nabal's not going to listen to anyone, Nabal thinks he is the ultimate authority, that the world revolves around him, comes and brings his attention to his wife, Abigail. And probably not the first time that one of the workers have brought something to the attention of Abigail that, that, that Nabal has done and acted foolishly on. He comes to Abigail and says, Behold, David sent messages out of the wilderness to greet our master and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were there in the fields as long as he went with them. They were a wall to us both day and night. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all of his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. It's a little bit Princess Leia, isn't it? It's a bit of, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. It's like, you need to do something. Consider what you can do knowing that this is what your husband's done. You know what the outcome is? David's going to come. He's going to come against us. But Nabal doesn't listen. He thinks he's the ultimate authority. Now you could say, well, it's understandable that the worker would come and bring this request before Abigail. After all, he thinks his own life's in the risk. But at the same time, he recognises he needs someone outside of himself to save him from that situation. But I think it goes further than that. I think he recognises that David is worthy of honour. That it was right to respond in an honourable manner, to give plentifully to him. Now, Abigail, who's wise and discerning, her response isn't, no, I can see why he done that. Just, just go back to work. She acts instantly. There's not a, not a hesitation at all. Loads up with the donkeys, 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep, 35 kilos of grain, 100 raisin clusters and 200 cakes of figs. Possibly not necessarily enough for the entirety of the 600 men with David but certainly an appropriate gift of thanksgiving for his gracious act towards them. But I think a motivation, again, it's more than just protecting lives. As Abigail comes towards David, as they reach a point where they see one another, she immediately falls on her face, bows down before him in humility, honouring David. And look at the wording of their interactions between the two. It's not a case of, who do you think you are? I'm, I'm Nabal's wife. She constantly refers to herself as your servant six times. Every time she addresses David, she speaks of him as my Lord 14 times. She recognises who he is. She recognises that he's worthy of honour. And not just because of his upbringing, 
but she recognises he is one whom the Lord God is working through. To see just some of the things that are mentioned in these interactions, he recognises David as the one, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Verse 28, the Lord will certainly make for my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Verse 29, if men rise up to seek your life, the Lord will protect you. Verse 30, the Lord will make you leader over all of Israel. And then in verse 31, when the Lord has done all of this, remember me, your servant. Abigail has got some significant prophetic insight into how God is at work in David's life. Not only does she recognise that he will be king over all Israel, which a number of people have recognised that already so far in 1 Samuel, but look at verse 28. The Lord will make my Lord a sure house. That is a phrase that gets used throughout the scriptures regarding David's sure house, the everlasting kingdom. We often ascribe the, the, the first announcement of this as being 2 Samuel chapter 7, but Abigail is actually the first one in a, in a, in a smaller form to announce that the Lord is giving David a sure house. It's quite significant. This is a big moment. This has come through a woman who we've had hardly any reference to whatsoever. In fact, two of the big key events in the God's plan of redemption are first revealed to a woman. We've got Abigail here announcing David's sure house and the birth of the Messiah was first spoken to Mary. So if you thought the Bible and Christianity was a boys' club, I would encourage you to think again. While David was there, he's come with his 400 men full of their swords. There's no doubt what he's about to do, what he's hoping to do, yet Abigail can confidently say, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. She spoke confidently and God spoke through her. And as we see in David's response, David recognised that. Talk about a different response. You've got Nabal, the fool, who's kind of like, who on earth does David think he is? Why would I honour him? Why would I give up anything of, of mine for him? And then you've got Abigail, who recognises David as the Lord's anointed, worthy of honour, the king, the one whom the Lord God will give a sure house. And when that is established, ask that David would remember her. Now you could think, ah, so what? Husbands and wives disagree on stuff all the time. Why should this one matter anymore? Well, not only because we're speaking about David, who is a foreshadow of the Lord's anointed, pointing us to the greater and perfect King of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfilment of that promise, of that sure house given to David, a king who would reign forever. And that kingdom that would continue to be built as people respond to the gracious act of that king, that king who came into the world not was strapped with a sword, but came to, to redeem and deal with the offence of mankind's dishonour towards God 
by bearing the guilt and shame and the punishment on the cross. Being raised on the third day, demonstrating his authority and power over sin, death and Satan, that he was acceptable in the sight of God and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he will reign until all of his enemies are being placed under his feet. So if the response to David as the foreshadowing Lord's anointed was a significant impact on the situation, how much more is it to think about our response to the final and perfect Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ? Nabal, as I said, name means fool. Hopefully a nickname. But a fool, as far as the Bible is concerned, is not just about someone who does a few silly things, wears odd socks and has got a crazy haircut. The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's a term that regularly gets repeated in terms of failing or refusing to honour God, to recognise who God is and respond rightly. The prophet Isaiah says, the fool speaks folly. And his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and deprive the thirsty of drink. That's what the fool does. They do whatever they like. They speak falsely about God. Brothers and sisters, we are all recipients of the gracious acts of the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ. The Apostle speaks of him in this way in Colossians chapter 1, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. By nature of you being alive, you have received gracious blessings from him. If you enjoy anything in this world in which we live in, you have received graciously from him. But how of these two responses have you responded to him? Or maybe even how will you respond to him in the future? You could respond like Nabal. Say, who is this Jesus? Why on earth would he get any second of my time? Why on earth would I waste my time honouring him? That's certainly the way I thought when I was younger. It's like Nabar when they ask, who is David? A person who would say, who is this Jesus? It's the same. It's, it's not that you don't know who he is. It's that, is he worthy of my honour? Remember, we're told in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, that God has made himself plainly known to everybody. It's not that they don't know, it's rather that we try to suppress or deny it because if there is a gracious Lord's anointed who has blessed us with all good things, then if we haven't honoured him, then we deserve to be punished. But unlike David, Jesus would have been justified coming to punish but in John 12, 47, he says he has not come to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus came into the world, not to give it what it deserved, but to give us and offer us 
what we don't. So how have we responded? Do we recognise that he's worthy of our honour? If you recognise now that he's worthy and you haven't up until this point in time and you're kind of overwhelmed with a sense of guilt of what have I done? Then there can also come that wonderful flood of grace and mercy knowing that he has done on the cross everything that is needed to, for you to turn to him, to trust in him, to receive forgiveness of sins and the very perfect righteousness of Christ. We see in the example of Nabal and Abigail, an example of two different responses, but also foreshadows a warning for all of us. How will we respond? My prayer is for all of us that we might recognise the grace offered in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would respond in a way that is wise and discerning for his honour and glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, every single one of us have lived for some extent in their lives in complete dishonour of you. Lord, we, I can give you thanks that you opened my eyes to the extent of my rejection of you, but also the extent of your worthiness. You're the one who has graciously provided us with all things and even more mercifully provided the way of escape and salvation when we didn't deserve it. But we thank you that you are the God who changes hearts. You can even turn the most stubborn of rebels around. But we pray that you would have confidence in your gospel to take it out and, Lord, that we would see people turn to you and know the joy of your salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.